Welcome to the Peter O. Estevez Show with your host, Peter O. Estevez. Get it fast, hit it dash in my position, you will never last. Real talk, I had to get it from the mall. Real talk, now I'm vibing with a bankroll. For over 25 years, entrepreneur, speaker, and CEO Peter O. Estevez has built businesses all over the world. And today, he shares his experiences, failures, and successes along the side of some of the most sought after thought leaders to help you pave your way to success. Please welcome to the show your host, Peter O. Estevez. This is your host, Peter O. Estevez. Today, I have the honor and pressure of having none other than my great friend, Carlos Amesqua. Hello, Carlos. Welcome to the Peter O. Estevez Show. Oh, hola, Peter O. ¿Cómo estás? Bastante bien. Carlos. Te ves tan guapo. You're so handsome. <laughs> You're being too kind, too kind, because you know your bias kind of it's coming up, so you want me to make sure I throw some flowers on you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Carlos Amesqua is a son of Don Oscar Amesqua, who was a mariachi musician, part of the Mariachi Vargas of Tecatlitlan. Carlos Amesqua was raised in the Barrio Logan, San Diego, California. He began his undergraduate studies at Brigham Young University, and he served as an LDS missionary in Guatemala and El Salvador mission. Carlos is formerly a KTLA uh, anchor uh, on the morning news in Los Angeles from 91 to 2007. Before this, he was part, he was a reporter in San Diego, Denver, Portland, Oregon, uh, and a network correspondent for CBS, and also reported NBC Nightly News, CNN, HBOs, and American Undercover. Carlos took over his anchor of the 10 p.m. newscast at KTL. Carlos left KT. KTTV December 2013 and in 2014, Carlos began hosting an afternoon drive show, Patriot Radio in Los Angeles. Today, Carlos is a co-founder of Be on TV and he's an incredible, incredible human being. He is also Be on TV on the background there. There you go. Uh, he is also, he has done an incredible work, incredible work in marrying traditional media with digital media and live streaming. Hello, Carlos Amesqua, and welcome to the Peter O. Estevez Show. Well, it's great to be with you. I really enjoyed the, uh, the event that we had with Excelente and got a chance to meet you and, and the team. And I uh, was so excited to see something like that come about to, to kind of reach out to our fellow Latinos and, and inspire them and, and uplift them. Thank you so much, Carlos. As you know, I am on a mission to empower 100 million people by December 31st, 2028. And my mission is through the platform that we are created, the movement that we have created, Excelente, and that is to identify, inspire, educate, transform, and empower 100 million people. And one of the things that we have been doing as part of our mission is to highlight Latinos that have made great strides in America and the United States. You know, uh, the land of opportunity. You know, I find that on mainstream America and on many positions, including, including journalism, there's very few Latinos that really have a, I can think of a few, uh, Gerardo Rivera, I can think of a few that have really gone, gone mainstream, but that's not the only place. That's, that's a, 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 on seaboards, that is on, on, on sea positions and on many, many other spaces. And you know, that's one, of the that's one of the reasons that Tim, Selena and myself became committed 
to create a movement to empower and highlight other Latinos that are doing great things as yourself. You know, one of the fascinating things about you that I learned this recently was that your father was a violinist with the mm -hmm. Mariachi Vargas of the Clan, and then you lived in Mexico City. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. What an exciting... Uh, well, I, you know, it was, it was an interesting time because my father was uh, a rising star with RCA Victor Records in Mexico City, and he was... Uh, playing with the Mariachi Vargas and singing and getting discovered. And he was appearing on television. And I was five or six years old, was in his 20s and, and early 20s. He was really quite the, uh, the, the amazing musician and singer. He had great stature, great poise and, and a very attractive uh, celebrity in Mexico City. And uh, we were a young family. I remember uh, growing up in, uh, well, not growing up. I had spent a couple of years in Mexico City in the Colonia Coyoacan. Wow. And, and going to Bellas Artes and watching my dad perform. And, and I do remember those because they're vivid memories. They're things that you don't forget. Um, my dad being on television and my dad be playing with these great artists that everybody recognized, Alola Beltran and, and all the different uh, actors and, and, and musicians that were around at that time. And the Mariachi Vargas was really very globally popular. So my dad did tours with them and, and performed, but... Uh, at, at the risk of suffering uh, the downfall of our family, he didn't continue that in, in Mexico City. So, so what happened was that he decided to move us back to the U.S. Uh, I was born in San Diego, then we moved to Mexico, Mexico City and went back. Kind of the musician's tale, sure, right? Sure, sure. No stability. <laughs> but he achieved, he achieved great success in, with his violin work, even, even though he... Uh, he left the Mariachi Vargas. My grandfather also played with the Mariachi Vargas. So we have a great Mariachi legacy in my family. I, I love that. Now, tell us a little bit about spending those two years in Mexico City. And how did that change you as a person? And what did you learn being immersed? Although it was part of your, your, your bloodline, your, your, your culture, but right. it was not something that you had been immersed in. You were born in San Diego, grew up in San Diego. So how was, what's, what was the difference in that? Well, I think I think it's clear that um, one of the things that's very, very apparent in, in my life has been the, the bilingual aspect of my life. I, I grew up speaking Spanish. I spoke with an accent until I was 13 years old. There's actually recordings of me learning how to speak English that my mom recorded us when we were young. Uh, me trying to read the newspaper in English and you could hear the accent. And my mom, who uh, actually went to school in San Diego, was uh, living in Tijuana, but went to boarding school in, in, in the U.S., had a particular way of teaching us English. And, and so at this point, there's no accent in my English speaking. Right. And, and right. there's a little bit of accent in my Spanish speaking, but I speak both languages fluently. And I think that was the great, one of the greatest gifts that my family gave us was the, the bicultural and the bilingual aspects of our lives, because we actually call home in two places. Sure, sure. And, and which is very interesting because there's the other element, right? And, and you and I have talked about it. And it's one of the things that I'm very, very passionate about, about studying the migration or the immigration of, of Latinos into the U.S. Mm -hmm. and how once we become here, the total opposite of what you just said happens, right? We become small. We put our head down. We do not acculture ourselves to the American culture. We try to create our country and create a community that, that, that simulates that country wherever we came from. You know, we see that in, in, in Los Angeles. We, we see that in New York and many of the major cities. How there's little Guatemalas and there's little Mexicos and there's little. Right. But you did, you did the opposite. You embraced it 
as something that has helped you grow and evolve. Why do you think that's different than somebody that comes here? Was that, was that, did that have anything to do with maybe economic affluence or, 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 or any of that? I think this is a typical story of a lot of immigrants. You know, you come to this country and, and, and you try to assimilate. And I think that it forces you to succeed because if you don't succeed, you don't survive. You don't, you end up driving or walking back across the border and saying, I give up, I can't make it in this country. So when, when you assimilate into, into a culture as powerful as the United States in the 50s, when it was very American uh, and, and pretty much white, and you know, there was just white and black in, in, in the US when I was a kid, and uh, uh, we had a few Latinos, and, you know, Mexicans who came in, and at the time in the 50s, uh, a few Asians as well, but it was not a, as it is today, a multicultural country. It was really uh, up to the individual to say, I like what I'm seeing. I, I want to grow in that direction and I want to learn all I can to succeed. My dad really was the, the best example and my mom too, the, the work ethic that they had and the drive that they had to succeed and the kind of life they wanted to give to, to my brothers and to my sister. And, and we responded, we were eager beavers, we were ready to go like, you know, okay, you know, I, one of the things that I like to talk about is that when I was young, uh, in 1963, I was very connected to John F. Kennedy. And when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be president of the United States. That's ridiculous. I mean, a, a guy named Carlos is going to be president of the United States. Well, <laughs> at the time, I didn't see myself as, as Carlos Amesco, the with a label, you know, Mexican American, we didn't have those labels when we were young. Uh, at least in my head, I, you know, I never heard that until I got outside of my barrio. Then I heard, Oh, you're Mexican. Oh, you, you know, your name is Carlos. So they stick a label on you. Right? right. But before that, before that, there was all this ambition. I admired president Kennedy so much. I wanted to be just like him. And he came to San Diego and I actually got to see him in person in a parade. So these are things that kind of, you know, motivate young people when, when you have no boundaries, right? You don't, right. you don't know. Right. There's no prejudices. There's no boundaries. You just go for it. Yeah. And, and to your point, you know, something very interesting that you say, uh, the America of the 60s, the America of the 50s, the America of even the 70s was very black and white. There was mm -hmm. really no in between. As a matter of fact, I had a completely different experience. We migrated to San Antonio, Texas, which is a heavily influenced military base. At the time, there was nine military bases. Yeah. So you're talking about middle of America. You know, you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, patriotism and, and, and really, really a, a black and white country for a city that today I think represents like 49% Latinos, right? Uh, uh, with a population of, of almost 5 million people, including the metro areas. But I remember in the 60s and uh, in, in the 70s when we got there, uh, I had a different experience because we came, you know, although my father was born in Houston, he was raised in Mexico. He, he was an orphan at the age of uh, three, uh, I believe it was three or four years old. Mm -hmm. His family, the family, the extended family that that uh, that his parents had took him back to Mexico. He was raised in Mexico, but then eventually having 13 children, having no education, forced wow. him to come back and work in America. 13 okay. children? 13 children. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 when we came to America, I didn't realize, I, I, I used to remember as a young boy, not, uh, and, and I heard this in another interview that you had, Carlos, you said, I never knew what I didn't have. We couldn't compare, you know, uh, right. toys or, or, or who had, you know, designer jeans or this game or whatever game. There was no comparison. 
I experienced that in Mexico, where I noticed the prejudice was when we came to the States, okay? And now we were the odd family, 13 children in a two bedroom, one bath home, in a corner home, in a community that was primarily white. And the Latinos that lived in the community or the Chicanos, Latinos, whatever we want to call them, right? They live in that community. There were, there were people that grew up in the States, were born in the States, that were the second or third generation. And they took a lot of pride of being American and they considered themselves American. I don't know when that evolution of that change took place that difference that we see that is such a segregation that we see today. Uh, I, 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 I can't even begin to, to, to imagine when that took place, but I do remember experiencing that being called a wetback, you know, but I, I think a lot of our stuff primarily, uh, Carlos was not so much that we were Latinos. We were just a different kind of Latino, right? You know, 13 <laughs> children. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would get this. I'm sure you get this a lot. Well, you don't look Mexican. How come you say, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, what does a Mexican look like? I'm not sure what you're talking about. You know, yeah. we're all colors. We're, we're, yeah. we're black, we're white, we're brown, we're Asian. Latinos are ever, of every, you know, the kaleidoscope, right? And so, yeah. yeah, I always found that to be very curious, people's impression of who you were. I, I was working at a, at a station in, in New York and uh, a producer uh, was introduced to me and he looked at me and he goes, well, what are you? Are you Puerto Rican? Are you Cuban? I said, no, I'm, I'm Mexican-American. He goes, oh, I've never seen a Mexican before. And he was doing this with his head like I was some, like a zoo animal. And it yeah. was the weirdest thing. And, you know, he never got over that, that weird prejudice that he had and how, and he would speak to me like I didn't understand him. And yeah. so I finally started going, I started doing it back to him. Well, since you are talking to me this way, I will too. And it was, I mean, that's how, that's how crazy sometimes I get because it, it, people just don't understand how prejudiced they are. And, and you just have to let it roll off your back and, and move on. Well, and the reality is that people cannot understand what they have not experienced, Carlos. So we right. take that into a, a, a little, you know, if you have been, if, if you've been living in a box, whatever that box may look like, right? right. Uh, and we all have to a certain degree. It's very difficult to understand what we have not experienced, what we have not lived. Uh, and, and just to make this clear for the audience, this is not a, a, a conversation about racial uh, oh, no. No. or anything like that. We're just talking among two friends that have, have had different uh, experiences in America and have they able to cope with them and yet achieve a certain level of success because we did not allow any of those vices to hold us back from becoming the people that we want to become. Right. So we pushed through it. We pushed through it all. I think with grace and with honor and dignity. And to me, it was important to, to, uh, I always said, I always want to make my dad, my mom and dad proud. And I think that's part of our culture that we want to, we want to honor our parents by succeeding and doing better than, than they did. And of course it was always my goal to achieve more than, than, than was expected of me. Uh, to honor my family and to, and to, you know, level up my, the family name. So well, I think that was always in the back of my head, no matter what was in front of me, no matter what people said to me or whatever things, uh, obstacles were in front of me, I would push through that and use that as an, an opportunity to, to move ahead. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and to be honest with you, Carlos, at some point, uh, you know, as a young boy, I, I had a really hard time understanding why my parents had made certain choices. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I did that out of ignorance, out of, out of uh, lack of maturity, out of lack of understanding, out of ignorance, whatever you want to call it. But at some point I realized that my parents could only give me what they knew, what they had, what they had available to themselves, what they had learned through life and what had been given to them. 
But I also realized that as the world changes, uh, we have a responsibility to adapt, to pivot, to change, to grow, to evolve. And if anybody has mastered that, it's you, Carlos. You have been an incredible pivot going from, from television to today, what you're doing, how you marry digital media with, with traditional media. Let's talk about your experience and how you enter television. And what was your first experience in television? You know, the first experience in television was at, at Brigham Young University. I, I actually had majored in art and, and thankfully a person who liked me and appreciated me was trying to be a mentor without re actually realizing he was a mentor. I have two passions in life, music and fine art. And uh, from the age of six to, to today, I oil paint and I've oil, always oil painted. It has always been my, my desire to become a famous painter, but I wasn't quite good enough to, to be a great painter. Uh, I paint it. I think I do a good job of painting and I Carlos, enjoy I my clarify painting. something. You're both famous and you're a painter. So you accomplish both. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't the painting that made me well known in Los Angeles. It was my mouth. <laughs> it, it, it all has to do with mindset, Carlos. It's mindset. It's, it's all with the mindset. Yeah. <laughs> inspiration, education, transformation and empowerment. <laughs> so, so, so Dr. Clark Hall of Salt Lake City had a, had a little chat with me and said, you know, being a, being a fine art major is a good thing, but you're never going to make any money. And I got news for you. There's a million artists like you, and you need to focus on something. Maybe you should try advertising or something like that. So I went back to my, my college counselor, and I asked him what, what I should do. And so he made me a, a program where I was involved in advertising. Part of the advertising curriculum was news writing. And, and, and actually, that's where I found that I was very interested in news. I, as a kid, I was always interested in news. I, I absorbed everything that Walter Cronkite said. I was all about the moonshots and all the stuff that was going on with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I had this all in my head and I didn't realize that it was really at my core. And so BYU had a television station. I auditioned. They put me on TV and off I went. And I got my first job in Salt Lake City as a, as a desk assistant. Then, then I got a job as a reporter. And my, experience, my early experiences were full of foibles and, and problems and, you know, lack of experience saying and asking dumb questions and falling on my face and forgetting where I was, all that kind of stuff that you, that you do as a new reporter. But I persevered and I, I realized that I had a gift for this and that I had a gift for writing the English language, which is something that, that I really am grateful for. And so that helped me uh, sustain a, a career of 45 years in TV. Uh, I was grateful and honored to be surrounded by amazing uh, support people, producers and writers and photographers who, who just always made me look good. And, and uh, I always got along with them. We had a good time. I, it was like I never worked a day in my life because I found this great career, uh, thanks to some advice from uh, a dentist who lived in Salt Lake City, who kind of righted the ship and said, Carlos, art is a good hobby but you might want to look at a career. And now this career has created something that's phenomenal. And I, I think back at that and how grateful I am for, for good mentors and advice. And let me tell you some of the buzzwords that, that stick out. Great story. Thank you, by the way. Okay. But the sound bites that stick out to me, the nuggets that stick out to me, and it's something that I want to emphasize to the audience, uh, to the audience is that you were able to identify a mentor. Okay. Today, we call them mentors. Back then, you and I didn't know what those were. Right. We, we just we just heard somebody else's advice, you know, to, uh, but the reality that today in today's world, 
uh, a world that is fully digitized, that is fully democratized, that is fully demonetized. We have the ability to reach out to mentors that you and I didn't have access to when we were young boys because it's social media, the sound bites of information that we get today were not available then. You know, in fact, the personal development space was almost like an exclusive country club for the uh, wealthy and affluent and the Caucasian community, you know, which is something that that I'm very passionate about. And what I have realized was that because I didn't see all those tools around me as a young boy, I didn't see those mentors. I started emulating, you know, and, and I go back to very early on, you said you had a tremendous passion and love and respect for President Kennedy. And that was a model. That was somebody you mm-hmm. wanted to be like, okay? Yeah. And I think a lot of times we don't know what they are. We don't know what to call them. But if we begin to create a lifestyle uh, around the things that we want to do, we are able to travel that journey to our passion a lot easier. You mentioned Walter Conkright. Yeah. Same thing. So you model, you, 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 you begin to model the people that you loved and respected and you wanted to be like. What's fascinating to me today is that all those tools are available to, today on uh, YouTube, Google, podcasts, <laughs> ebooks. Okay, there's, there's a plethora of resources available for the audience that many of them don't even cost money, but they're available for, from A to B or, or from B to Z, wherever you want to go if you really want to achieve something today. Uh, and, and, and I think the other thing that you said that, 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 that resonated with me is the fact that you said, uh, uh, even when I fell on my face, I was able to get up. Okay. And I want to dig dive into that a little bit more okay. because most people see failure, uh, as finite, as final, as that's it. I didn't succeed. Okay. So what was it that kept you going and what was it that you have learned about? falling on your face or failure today that you use that as a tool to move forward and continue to create as much as you have done today. Well, I wish I had a, I wish I had a deep uh, sense of that. I think that uh, survival, the survival instinct that I had early on in my life and watching my dad, uh, you know, go from, go from job to job and, and to, and to work his way through his life and seeing that he would not get picked to be on this, this show or that particular show watching his disappointment, but then seeing him every day rehearse his violin by himself in the living room, going through the sheet music, watching him work, 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 never stopped working at his craft. And he became so good that then the the big dog started hiring him. His first violin at the San Diego Symphony, played with the LA Philharmonics and played with played with the big orchestras like Nelson Riddle and Leighton Noble and, and, and uh, played with the Rat Pack in the 60s. So when you, when you think about what a young Carlos Amesqua sees as failure, failure only to me only meant that I needed to figure out a way around whatever it was that I just failed at and move on and move through it. And I believe me, I, I made a lot of mistakes during my broadcasting career and uh, none of them fatal, thank goodness. I, you know, I tried to keep myself uh, above and beyond and, and elegant in the presentation to be as, as thoughtful and truthful and as and as unbiased as I could, because that was the way I was taught uh, as a, as a young journalist to, to behave, no opinions, to to listen to both sides of a story and deliver it. And on occasion, I tripped up, did some things that I perhaps would not have done again. And I had again great mentors who would say to me, "You really messed that up. What are you going to do about it?" 
<laughs> I'd go, well, I don't know. How do I fix this? It's already come out of my mouth. I've said it. And, and so they would, they would give me challenges to, to overcome. I got fired once. That was not a fun experience. Um, you know, I, I lost my home. My family was suffering. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I researched and tried to figure out what it was that wasn't working, changed my life and said, I'm moving in this direction. Even took a step back from where I was and what I had accomplished and said, you know what, it's okay to take a step back, reassess, kind of regroup, and then move forward again. I got fired and had this horrible experience of getting fired. I was overcome with stress. I, I literally thought my world was going to end. A lot of stress on my marriage, a lot of stress on my family. And then as if God opened the gates of heaven and said, Carlos, here's an opportunity. What do you think? Uh, I was ready for that opportunity. And, and though I, at the time, uh, was, was uh, you know, I was praying, I, you know, like, I love, I love talking about BYU because I was the only Catholic at BYU, it seemed like, <laughs> all surrounded by Mormons. And they taught me something that was very important, and that was to pray and, and to, to think about something beyond yourself, above yourself, that, that you could reach out to. And the opportunity came, became the KTLA Morning News opportunity, which was to start a brand new morning show in Los Angeles. There was no live morning show in LA. And out of failure came the greatest success I ever had as a broadcaster. That show became the number one show in the nation. We would have 6 million viewers a day watching that show. Wow. We, had, we, we killed the Today Show, the Good Morning America. CBS This Morning wasn't even a player. In Los Angeles, we wiped them out. We would have 80% of the TVs watching us. The ratings were phenomenal. The company was raking in money, and I was doing well along with that. And we rode this. I rode that for 20 years, and it was out of the, the worst time in my life. I came out of the worst time of my life to the greatest 20 years of my life. So I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting thing to, to study, but uh, the one thing that you have to absolutely understand is that you can't give up. You can't say it's over. I'm done. You know, I'm 30 years old and I haven't accomplished what I wanted. No, your life is not even getting started yet. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a couple of things that you said, and I, I, as you probably noticed by now, I, I love to dissect some of the, some of the content. You are the doctor of dissection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, because I want, I want to emphasize the nuggets that you've thrown out there, Carlos, because they're so they're so valuable and, and they bring so much value to what our movement is, our platform is, and that is to empower people, to give them the tools and the resources to help them inspire, to educate, them, to transform them. But yeah. more importantly, to empower them with tools that are available out there today. You said, you, you know, I often talk about in the Latino culture, about the fact that we are rooted to limit the beliefs, okay, or social condition that no longer service. Okay, and we can look at those all day long and we can criticize all those long and we can waste all our time doing that. But there's also incredible and uncanny resources available for what we take in from our uh, from our ancestors, from our parents, our grandparents. Oh, yeah. One of the things that you mentioned was your father never giving up and how resourceful, you know, I often say the Latinos are entrepreneurs uh, by default. OK, <laughs> yeah, that's you know? true. and we created the side hustle by default. You know, because of lack of education, of lack of preparation, lack of resources, we have to create a way to survive and to thrive. 
Okay. I think the only problem is in our culture, many of us got stuck in the survival point and have not learned to thrive yet. So, you know, you learn the resourcefulness from your father to continue pivoting, to continue changes and not to give up. You also cite your religion, your faith, the, the only uh, Catholic in a Mormon environment, right? So you talked about that. And, and, and I always said that I, that I inherited my father's resourcefulness and hard work ethic and my mother's uncanny faith. Okay. It was my mother's faith that carried me through. But I also realized that I could not just rely on faith. I had to take action. Okay. So yes, I took a step back. I pray. I believe. I surrender. I reassess. Okay. I research, which is another word that you use in your conversation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I started over again. So there's many lessons to learn from that. Right. So tell us, how did you get from there to be on TV? And what was the idea behind Marion? Why not go back to traditional television? After all, if you don't mind me saying you're 68 years old, you know, most people will say, well, you know, he's really not tech savvy. Well, obviously you are right we kind of dismiss or we believe that technology is only for the younger generation, right? So where was that idea born? It's an incredible, innovative idea. Where was it born and why marrying the two? Well, I, you know, I have to say that one of the blessings of my life is that I've been surrounded by wonderful young people who inspire me and, and, and know better than I, and, and, and even older people who know better than I, I I've always tried to, to do that, to, to, to bring people together. Uh, the idea for Beyond TV started. I- I'm many- learning to do that, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it works. <laughs> many, many years ago, uh, I think it was around 2000, around, around the year 2000, I started to get uh, really interested in, the te- in technology as the internet was evolving and uh, our mobile phones. We all had different, remember all the different kinds of mobile phones that were available and uh, flip phones and th- the big phones and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I got involved in some, in some projects that, that allowed me to explore kind of the entrepreneurial side of, of what I was doing. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I came across a group that was, was doing some innovative things in streaming in 2005. And, and, uh, and, and we did very well with that company. We, we sold the company and, and did very well with it. And it was the, 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 the initial, the throes of streaming television. And Fox uh, implemented our, our product, and it was called uh, Fox Full Throttle. Disney implemented it. CBS implemented it. And it became part of what, what we have today in, in, in streaming that doesn't buffer and doesn't stall. Remember, you used to have all those problems, and the oh, sure. little wheel of death would come up. Well, we, we managed to solve that problem. So that was my first success and interest uh, in that. And I felt at the time... Uh, that it that I was ready to move from anchor to executive, and as I tried to move from anchor to executive, all kinds of walls came up. All I mean, it was amazing. Here I had achieved at a high level in Los Angeles, number one for almost two decades in the marketplace, and as I tried to to make a move and say, look, I'd love to listen, learn a little bit more about sales. I'd like to learn a little bit more about station management, how the group works how we make money, how you operate a TV station, how you operate a TV network, because I was very curious about, about that. I wish the doors just slammed shut. It was like, dude, you're not part of this. You're talent. You're a nice looking guy. You can talk well, but that's about as far as you're going to go. Wow. And I really felt it. I really felt like it was very limiting. 
And so to get up into the C-suite, I had a conversation with a Fox executive uh, who I tried to convince that we needed to, to put a digital network next to the Fox broadcast network. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, digital is the future. Now, this is 2007. I said, digital is the future. This is going to be more important to you than your broadcast because broadcast has been going on since 1947, broadcast television. It's aging. Uh, so is its audience. And the young people are adapting to these, these devices. Devices, yeah. So anyway, uh, I mean, this was a lot of people were saying that. I wasn't the genius that thought of that, but that clearly was my thought. Anyway, um, I got nowhere with the, with the executives. And so along about uh, four, four years ago, I had a conversation with my daughter, Amy, who had been an executive at E-Networks and, and Reels Channel and had worked at uh, Current TV up in San Francisco, uh, the, the company that Al Gore founded. And she was in charge of live television and working as an executive. And we had a conversation and, and she said, well, dad, you know, and I was explaining to her my frustrations with all this. She's very bright and can cut right through things and said to me, well, why don't we start our own? Wow. Why do we have to wait for somebody else to do it? Let's, let's, let's us do this. So we did. We, we launched uh, Beyond TV and started working on doing things uh, that really mattered. And I said, look, I, I've been in news for, for a long, long time. And I have PTSD from all the things that I've experienced that are negative. I want to be uplifting. I want to be positive. I want to be entertaining. I want it to be kind of like the morning news that I experienced in Los Angeles that brought so much joy to people uh, here in Los Angeles. So that was, that was what we set out to do, to, to uplift, to educate, and entertain. And that's the Beyond TV motto. If a program or an idea doesn't fit in that realm... We don't do it. We're not political. We don't side with anything. We're not really a news organization, but we talk about things that are important. And, and, uh, and, and hopefully people come away feeling good about what they've experienced. We also want people on our, on our network that are upbeat, positive mentors, have good things to say, uplift people, make people feel good, and come away learning something that makes their lives worthwhile. So Beyond TV decided that, well, we decided that Beyond TV needed to, to embrace broadcasting, but be a digital network that works hand in hand with television stations. So, so we have a group of television stations that work with us. We create programming, we give them programming, but direct them digitally to us so that the core of Beyond TV streams and on demand on, on our OTT channels uh, is able to 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 reach out to that public that's saying, you know, I don't even know where to go to watch these things anymore because I'm not sure, I'm not comfortable. Yeah. I don't know what my kids are going to see. I don't know what I'm going to learn, what I'm going to get. So we have married that, and it's actually working very well. And now, now, Peter O. Estevez, the television stations are listening. Uh, <laughs> now the networks are listening. So uh, we, what, what our vision is, Beyond TV will be the Hulu, the Netflix, uh, the Amazon of media. And so uh, Byron Allen is, is doing his thing with, uh, with entertainment studios, and I'm doing my thing with Beyond TV. So we're kind of running like, we want to be the biggest media company in the world, but we're all like, we're in a race. He's way ahead of me, but we're, 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 char we're chugging ahead. I love that. I love that. So see, you did make it to the C-suite. Well, yeah. Now, now I'm a co-founder of Beyond TV. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So when you cannot make it to wherever you went, you built your own suite. 
There you go. Build your own car. (laughs) (laughs) A lesson for Carlos Amesco today. Hey, Carlos, so let's talk about those obstacles that you started facing. Reporter, talented, number one show in the country, okay? Companies, uh, the company's making a lot of money. Why why was Carlos Amesco blocked from even being considered a senior executive at a major network? Well, yeah, I thought I thought about that question an awful lot. I have to be honest with you, and I, and and I think that there is an inherent bias in the C-suite. I don't see boards with a lot of diversity. It's getting better. It's improving. Uh, I still think that there is an Ivy League club that's, and I mean that not not to disparage the Ivy League, but you you know what I mean. The upper echelon of universities and and, and schools that that kick out great graduates that are part of the family or the club from the previous family in the previous club. And so they tend to feel comfortable. Succession. Yeah, they, exactly. They, they, these executives, CEOs, chairmen of the board, the boards that, that are the top companies in the world feel comfortable with their own type and their own kind. We speak the same language. Uh, you know, we have the same handicap in golf. <laughs> Yeah. That's that sort of thing. So you you understand that there is a an inherent bias that's not necessarily something they even realize. One of my co-anchors, uh, her name is Michelle Ruiz, has created a company called Bias Inc., where she goes into companies and identifies biases within the corporation. Wow. I think that's genius because obviously a lot of companies don't realize what's going on within their own corporate structure. Oh, we're doing great. No, we we no look look. We hire Mexicans. We hire black people. We hire Asian people. We hire, 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 and and uh, they do a pretty good job of keeping them down there yeah. as employees. But to, to 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 lift them up and to give them an opportunity is something that's somewhat uh, alien to them. So it's up to people like you and me to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, once the opportunity's there, you're going to find people who want to rise become board members and become chairmen of the board. Right. They have to look for that, but they're not looking for that. So that, that was what I felt is that when I had conversations with leading executives in the media, there was not uh, a ready invitation uh, to play golf or to, or to talk about, uh, you know, what your favorite uh, club is to go have martinis. I mean, that's, that right. just didn't happen. Right. Right. So there's, there's somewhat of an unconscious Unconscious segregation, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you're not included. You're you're great. You're talent. You're good looking. You're a great voice. But uh, my country club is my country club. Okay. <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah. So 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 I get that part, uh, which which I find it very interesting. But I also I also want us to take some responsibility to that, Carlos. And I want to take us responsibility to that in the sense that as Latinos, okay, we have not done a very good job to display our leadership, okay? Because even in major, whether it's in a C-suite or in a major leadership role, we still have assimilated a lot of the cultural belief systems, traditions that we inherited from our parents, okay? Uh, or, or, or our parents' parents or multi-generations before us. I think what has happened, and, th- and this is also subconscious, this is also subconscious. I think these conversations are beginning to happen now. You know, they're, they're beginning to become mainstream. I'm also not a believer that I want my place on, on, on the corporate seat. No, I want to earn my place on the corporate seat. And I want to be equally treated to any other candidate that wants to apply for that corporate seat. 
Okay. I want you to look at my resume. I want you to look at my work ethic. I want you to look at my credentials. I just don't want to become a number. I don't want you to meet your buy status. Okay. You said something about the culture. You say, well, you know, we have a culture. We hire minorities. We hire Latinos. We hire. Okay. But the culture doesn't change. Okay. The culture does not change. It begins to remain the same. You know, the fascinating thing about Latinos is that, uh, that we have to get acculturated, okay? We have to get, a, you know, we, we, we have to detach from our traditions and become fully immersed in a system that is going to accept us. If we don't do that, we're never going to be accepted, okay? And we can't just settle. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to stay quiet because you're paying me X, Y, Z number of dollars. No, I'm going to show you my leadership, but I want you to consider me at all times, not just for this position, but for every position coming forward. And part of that, part of that is exactly what I talk about that. That requires inspiration, education, transformation, and empowerment. And not just from ourselves, but from our communities, okay? Mm -hmm. Sometimes our biggest instructors, our biggest competition is our own, is our own community. So with that in mind, Carlos, tell us where you see Beyond TV. I know you alluded to that a little bit and where you see Carlos Amesqua in the next year and how can we support you as a community? Well, I, I appreciate that very much. When we were thinking about what to call Beyond TV, we are definitely, I think we, we really wanted to, to be uplifting. But more importantly, the uplift part of that had to do with, with our Latino brothers and sisters and, and the voices that aren't heard, the, the young African-Americans who are trying to, to make their way up the ladder, the young Latinos, uh, the, the Asian who, are, who don't get a chance to be on Good Morning America and some of the other networks that get shut out, they get told no. We're a, we're a certified woman and minority owned company. We've been certified by this the, uh, certification uh, operation that, that's uh, national. We did that so that we could do business on a different level with corporations around the country. And we could have called our company, you know, Viva Carlos TV. <laughs> You know, or Viva TV. We could have, we could have put, we actually have put an Enya on the Beyond TV to let people know that we're a Latino owned company. Right. And there's difference. Uh, Byron Allen, who's one of my great mentors and friends, is says, uh, you know, the difference between black owned and black targeted is that black targeted, anybody can target uh, an ethnic group and provide information or shows or whatever to a targeted audience. Black owned, we know, he said, we know who we are, what we're about and what we need. Same goes for Latino owned. We are Latino owned. We know what we are, what we need to provide to our audience and what opportunities our audience needs and what opportunities business people who are Latinos need to, to, to to be lifted up. So our job really is to not be targeted but to be owned and to own our own destiny and to be able to say, look, all of you who are out there watching this broadcast, Peter Oestevez, Carlos Amesqua, we want to encourage you to come to us with your ideas and your opportunities and the things that you want to provide. And let's showcase this. Let's tell the world about it because we have 10 million impressions every month coming out of beyond TV. A lot of people are watching what we're doing and, and we're growing but I'll tell you, even with all of that, Peter, it's tough to get a bank loan. It's tough to get investors. There is still a bias that says, I'm not sure I buy what Carlos is saying. I'm not sure that he's going to succeed. 
Well, just look at my past. If you look at my past, you know what my future trajectory is. Trajectory is bigger than me, bigger than what you're thinking, because I'm, I want to play, I want to play with the big boys. When you look at your television and it shows Hulu, Netflix, Fubo TV, all of that stuff, Beyond TV is there along with them. And we're struggling to get the eyeballs that, that we need to grow as a huge company. But we want to do it by helping the little guy, the little the person who's not getting a chance to be on those big uh, commercial network talk shows. We have talk shows. We have programs that talk to, to uh, the person who is you know, struggling to figure out what to do with their life. So I'm excited about the future of Beyond TV. And I invite people who are interested in investing to talk to me about Beyond TV investing. Uh, people who may be strategic partners, people who in media who want to join an operation that has a, a big wide open door and says, hey, you know, come all and let's see what we can create together. We've had great experiences with a lot of great media uh, entrepreneurs in, in, here in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, we have a partnership with a company in London that's been terrific, and we've had our programming very well received in the UK. So there's lots of opportunities here to grow. And the beauty of it is, uh, Peter, is that I keep wanting to call you Pedro. Uh, call me Pedro. Of, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Only my beauty, friends call me Pedro. The, 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 the beauty of this is that, you know, it's it's open to everyone and that we really have an opportunity to, to make a difference in the world. And that's what really excites me. We think that, that we're on the right path, that we're not obviously Latino, but we are, but we're really a place for everyone. And, and we, we actually live diversity. We don't just talk about diversity. We are diverse. We are in everything that we do. We think, you know, we eat, live, and breathe diversity. It's just part of who we are. And, you know, all comers are welcome. And, and I think it's, it's an exciting time. The technology is affordable. It's easy. We do things for a lot less than a lot of the big network chains do. And we're able to minimize the expense and give people opportunities to, to, to have their stories told. And every day, storytellers come to us and they say, oh, we want to be on Beyond TV. What does it take? So that's the kind of stuff. That's the future, uh, Peter. And look, we're doing it now. You're, we're doing a podcast. And, and look, 10 years ago, this was not even thought of. Absolutely. The power of technology, the power of innovation the power of pivoting and creativity. Carlos Amesca, be on TV, another incredible, excellent story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Carlos' contact information will be available in the show notes. Stay tuned for this upcoming episode, which is an incredible, incredible story. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you so much. Hey, Peter. Yes. Stay excelente. Be excelente. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Peter O. Estevez Show. Make sure to join Peter and his next guest on a brand new episode as we continue changing and impacting lives across the world. Be sure to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, or leave a review today. Go ahead and get it fixed. Hit a dash in my position. You will never